Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell, here in Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from the Big Apple in New York City. She is the former attorney for the Hillary Clinton 2016 presidential bid in Ohio. She is the one we know as Sharmila Chari. Hey, Sharmila. I see you waiting for the next Omarosa tape to drop. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, joining me as they do every, and we're going to get to that real quick. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the one we call Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, hello. Hello, everybody. How are you? And uh, joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere in upstate New York or on Cape Cod, she won't tell us, is our uh, associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Hey, let's get to this. Uh, in case you have not seen the news all day, uh, there's a book that came out today from, uh, we all know her as just Omarosa. Uh, we can go into uh, her name, we can get into all that, but the bottom line is Omarosa put out a book. And apparently it is not very flattering of the president, the administration, those who work for the president. Uh, the reason why, normally we would not bring this up. This is too gossipy. But apparently it does dig into uh, the core of government, trust in your government, and uh, the toxic work environment possibly that is there in the White House. Uh, there is accusations coming from all sides in this. Uh, In the book, um, the Omarosa, or as we know her as, uh, uh, as we know it is uh, Omarosa Mangold Newman, Omarosa makes several accusations, blows a lot of whistles, uh, including the, uh, the tapes, which she has gone on a press junket to support her book, Unhinged. Uh, she has released tapes of everything from General John Kelly firing her in the Situation Room uh, to phone calls with other presidential aides, including one that was recently released, where they discussed that there is videotape of the president using the N-word. Uh, this is starting to blow up. It is something that you would think a mature White House comms team would deal with. But when you have a tweeting president that puts out stuff like congratulations on getting rid of that dog, well, it becomes a lot more complicated. Um, Sean, let me start with you. Uh, there's all, No matter what you think of Omarosa, no question – that she is, and I'm, and I'm just going to lay my observations out there. Uh, she is self-serving. I find her to be less credible than a normal whistleblower would be. 
Uh, she has demonstrated her her uh, propensity for uh, not acting in the mo- most ethical way while in the White House and out. Is is the Trump administration banking on the fact that Omarosa herself is unlikable, which gives them the which gives them pretty much an edge? in dealing with what could be a PR nightmare. Well, I think this whole Omarosa saga is really just a repeat of the story we've seen with other Trump staffers or other people in the Trump orbit who have, you know, split with him on, you know, acrimonious terms and they're, that are turning against him. You saw this with Sam Nunberg. You saw this with Michael Cohen. They're all with, you know, with Corey Lewandowski, with Paul Manafort, right? They're Steve Bannon, you know, they're all people, these are all characters who have less than ideal credibility, right? None of them are known to be full of integrity. None of them are known to be 100% truthful. They're all known to be people who have either lied under oath or fudged the truth or told lies in service of Donald Trump at some point in their career and then are backtracking. So <laughs> you just see the same cycle playing out again with Omarosa where both sides are untrustworthy and the White House is banking on the fact that they can say, oh, well, this person is not credible because they've told lies in the past to then undermine the fact that they're now being critical of the president and of the White House. So I don't think it's any. So and and I think that with Omarosa, to your point, it's magnified slightly because she burst on the scene originally as a villain in The Apprentice. Right. She was the the woman America loved to hate on The Apprentice because she was ruthless and she was backstabbing and she lied and she manipulated. And, you know, she she really used those things that are less than virtuous and turned them into a competitive advantage for herself in, you know, on that show and then in building her brand subsequently. So I think that you're right to some extent that, you know, the fact that her unlikableness was kind of a front and center part of her personality is certainly going to be part of the president and the, you know, the Trump legal team's strategy to discredit her. I don't know that in reality it's any different than what we've seen from the president before in trying to discredit his accusers who were formerly his allies. Yeah, but Admiral Ken, I mean, come on. I, I, I mean, look, we it is it is known that I have not been the most uh, supportive Republican of the current administration. However, Omarosa just makes it hard to really not feel sorry and lean towards the president and his team on this. Is that a question? I mean, is, I mean, is, is, is this a matter of who sucks less or who do we hate more? Omarosa so or Trump? If, 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 you go back, if you go back, if you go back to some of the character traits that you uh, used to describe Omarosa at the beginning of the segment, and you bookend it with some of the character traits that Sharmila just used to describe Omarosa, it appears to this casual observer of the Trump presidency that Donald Trump hired a black female version of himself. <laughs> and that, and that, <laughs> and that, you know. When when you when you when you lie down with dogs, one tends to stand up with fleas. And so, why would we expect her to behave any differently than she already has? 
He knew who she was when he hired her. Uh, he liked her because, in his words, he saw a lot of himself in her. Well, holy cow, guess what? This is what you get. Um, I think the real question or the real story here is the, uh, is the attempt by um, Chief of Staff John Kelly to get her to sign a, uh, a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, I've never heard of anything like that in government. Uh, I've even seen one or two com comments in the last couple hours or so about the fact that it may even be unconstitutional to try and get someone to do that. Um, I, I want to, one, be, be cognizant of the fact that the Trump administration as a whole tends to do things to distract us from what we should be really looking at. In my opinion, the whole kerfunkle about Omarosa, he said, she said, and the possibility of, of the president having used an N-word, which, by the way, don't be surprised if there is a tape of that of him doing that, because I wouldn't be surprised by it. That's not the issue. The issue is that an administration official tried to get, possibly tried to get a staffer to commit an act that was unconstitutional and by, by extension unlawful. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, Ken, I, I, you and I both been in government. I've been in government a long time. I sign NDAs all the time in government. Not, not as a government employee. Sure. Oh, sure, I did. Absolutely, I did. I had a, a non-disclosure agreements. You sign non-disclosure agreements when you are looking at uh, sensitive, but un, you know, uh, unclassified information. All right. Okay. So yeah, that's that's that. So you're, you're actually I've I've never used those terms to describe it, but yeah, you do sign a document basically saying if you uh, you um, disclose classified material, we're gonna we're gonna jail your ass. No doubt about that. We, we right. got that. So, but this, this, I mean, uh, this, this does not fall in that category. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, right. And remember that a that a confidentiality and non disclosure agreement is also different from a non disparagement agreement, which is part of what the Trump team often makes. Um often right. makes their employees and their you know, any hangers on in their orbit sign. Well, I mean, potato potato in this instance, isn't it, Charmla? No, not necessarily. Really? But you think No. Huh. Right, and non -dis okay. non disclosure can again relate to Non-disclosure can, re you know, in, in a more objective sense, will can relate to the disclosure of actual facts or circumstances that you observed while you were under an employment at a certain place, right? You know, I saw Mr. Smith coming in the door at 11 p.m. on Tuesday every t every week. That would fall into the realm of non-disclosure, whereas non-disparagement is a much more subjective uh, measure, which says, you know, I worked with Mr. Smith and I thought he was incompetent. That violates right, a non-disparity I mean, clause, back, but not a non-disclosure I mean, clause. All right, let's get back to let, let's get back to the situation here because it, it, it appears that uh, the tapes and Admiral Ken, did you actually hear the Amorosa record General Kelly? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And did did anything strike you as being? <clears throat> Uh, unprofessional about the way that he handled that other than we're going off of the word of somebody who brought a tape recorder into a secured facility 
I, I, I have fired, unfortunately, I've, unfortunately, I've had to fire a number of people uh, in my career, and it possibly was one of the worst um, dismissals I, I have ever heard. Uh, I thought it was unprofessional. I thought it was um, he, he did not have um, his dialogue um, either memorized or written for him. He left himself a great deal in, 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 in any other place, you know, including most right the workplaces. He would have left himself wide open uh, for a uh, subsequent lawsuit if uh, it had been in a civilian setting. And fortunately, he's got the power of the, of the federal government protecting him. But it was it was not very well done. And Charmlet, you're you're a corporate lawyer. You agree with Ken? Um, I think you know. Unfortunately, I agree with Ken that it was not well done, but I think, you know, unfortunately it is the norm in a lot of corporate workplaces to give sort of ambiguous dismissals like that, right? I mean, General Kelly could have, and it, you know, and unfortunately the only person that's really come back to bite now is General Kelly. And forget the integrity violation of the fact that, you know, Omarosa brought a recording device into a secured facility, which was very explicitly against the rules. The fact is that she did it, and now we have actual evidence of the conversation. And, you know, it's not just a he said, he said she said anymore. It is, this is what is on the tape. And that's really and, and, you important. Know, and, you know, what's really interesting about that is she, she probably has done herself a great disservice. And I think the Trump administration is missing the fact that by bringing a recording device into a skiff, she violated a number of prosecutable federal regulations, and if they really want to go after her, it, you know, the, the thing to do is not to worry about her having violated a non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreement. She broke the she broke federal law with regard to maintaining the security of a uh, of a classified space. True, well, but I in mean, the court of public opinion, if her tapes contradict the story that the White House is spinning, then that's going to matter more. Yes, she might have exposed herself to legal liability, which, again, will be adjudicated in the courts. But in the court of public opinion, if, her, if the tapes back up her yeah. version of the story, then that's going to be very bad for the, yeah. for the president. But, I mean, but Sharmila, I mean, seriously, uh, is the fact, I mean, literally this woman and, and right, hates everybody. Correct. And look, I'm, I'm not defending what she did in terms of, you know, the serious ethical and integrity violations. But you can't deny that she's been pretty smart about this in terms of covering all her bases and having leverage over people now. Because now, all of a sudden, if, if she's with her first, you know, horse out of the race, she's shown that she was willing to bring a recording device into the most sacrosanct of spaces in the White House. So when that's your opening pitch, you don't know... All these Trump staffers have got to be scared, you know, S-less, for lack of a better phrase, because they don't know what else she could have taped. The fact that she has taped a conversation with the president of the United States, they don't know what she has. You know, if any of them made an untoward remark or an offhand remark in front of her, they have no idea whether or not it's been recorded and if she could blast the entire world in a context that makes them look bad. And so I think you're going to see those White House staff, and especially a lot of the senior aides, treading very carefully about what they say about her in public. And <clears throat> I think you're going to see her release a lot of information calibrated to making herself look validated and then releasing tapes to back it up. But to and me, right, I and, 
Go, no, so go sorry. Ahead, go ahead. One last point. So in in evidence law, there's a concept called the fruit of the poisonous tree. And so the idea being that if a piece of evidence or you know or was you know illegally obtained, then anything that emanates from that evidence or anything that's proven by that evidence can't be admitted, right? Because it's the fruit of the poisonous tree. And so right now, even though you've seen a lot of um, a lot of debate about whether or not Omarosa can be prosecuted for bringing this recording device in, and there's actually a lot of opinion that she can't be prosecuted because while it was a very severe ethical violation and had she still been working there, she would have gotten fired for it. The fact that was that she was coming, being pulled into the room to be fired anyway, but that there was nothing inherently illegal about it. And you take into the fact that Washington, D.C. is a one-party consent jurisdiction in terms of recording, and there's no real evidence to indicate that her recordings would be considered fruit of the poisonous tree. All right, but but still, I mean, outside of uh, outside of a, a federal courtroom in D.C., uh, the court of public opinion just says, I mean, look, we're talking about a president right now that has 39% approval ratings with disapprovals at a 51 or 52, as seen as high as 56%. It strikes me that, I mean, is... Is Amarosa, Admiral Ken, going to be doing any real damage to this administration, or are they going to continue to hover with that 39% of base plus a sprinkling of outsiders of the true base? Uh, Does this really hurt the president? I I don't think it really does. Um, uh, I think that uh, if, 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 if nothing else, the, the 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 25 or 30 percent of the of the country that is adamantly anti President Trump, this only just goes down just another mark in the against uh, column of why they don't particularly like him in in his current role. Um, I, I will tell you that, um, um, and I I I, I I I I flinch whenever people like Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton take it upon themselves to speak for all black people. So I'm not going to do that. I'll just say amongst the black people that I know, Omarosa has got a terrible reputation. <laughs> I mean, she's got an awful oh, reputation. Oh, Ken, I can tell you, I can tell you from experience here in DC that she's got a terrible reputation with white people, Hispanics, Asians. Well, anybody breathing. What I'm driving here, what I'm driving at here is that. Um, is that when when she was dismissed from the White House um, and she went on one of the TV sh- uh, TV shows, there was not a a, a, a whimper uh, a, a amongst many many people that were black in in the form of of, uh, of feeling any kind of sympathy for her. And so the point that I'm driving toward here is that one, her actions, her um, um, her. Her actions are not um, going to have a, a huge effect uh, on the, the folks that are that 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 are black that think negatively of President Trump. I think that they're waiting for the other shoe to drop with regard to the use the tape of the president using the N word or something else along those lines. Um, I think that today Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, did a great job. <clears throat> 
doing her press briefing, one of the first times I will say that she did a good job of answering a question. She knows I think something's coming, and but she sidestepped it very, very well. I wasn't in the room. So, but Omarosa, you know, this this whole deal again, like I said before, where where we need to be focusing is the fact that the administration is trying to get people to sell to sign non non disclosure agreements, and I I don't think that's legal. I just don't. Well, she's it is. I mean, I've talked to a couple of attorneys, and Sharm will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the administration can get somebody to write to sign anything. Well, right, and technically, you only technically any agreement requires consideration, right? So the fact that they're asking them to sign, it's very typical to sign a non-disclosure agreement before you start before you start employment somewhere, right? Because you are, you know, there's there's exchange of promises. They are exchanging, you know, a, a job and a salary in exchange for your confidentiality. It's harder to get someone to sign an NDA after you've already fired them, unless you're giving them something in return, and whether that's the promise of a good reference or some sort of severance pay or something like that. To sign an NDA, to ask someone to sign an NDA without them getting anything in return for it could be considered unenforceable. It's not illegal, but there's a big chance that a court won't enforce it because there was nothing given in return. Let's go back to this situation, though, where uh, it was announced this afternoon, Sharmla, that uh, the Trump the Trump campaign has sued Omarosa in arbitration in an arbitration setting in New York City. Um, how does that differ from a, a, a regular lawsuit being filed in court? Well, you know, there's been a lot of controversy recently about the use of arbitration provisions. Um, This is something that's not just a Donald Trump issue. This is something that, you know, is kind of being debated in employment agreements across the across the spectrum, whereas, you know, the more powerful party will typically insist on arbitration with the employee. And typically, the you know, arbitra- arbitration is an, another means of dis- binding dispute resolution that is faster and more cost effective than going to a court and having a, you know, a jury trial or a bench trial. And so obviously, a lot of employers prefer it because it's much more cost and time effective for them to settle any employee disputes. Um, you know, there has been a lot of pushback recently because, you know, especially in the wake of Me Too, when a lot of women who had accused powerful men of harassing them or doing worse things to them were forced into arbitration in which they were forced to accept settlements that, you know, they really had no choice about. And then they were also subsequently forced into silence about what happened to them. And they felt that these, you know, this was unfair and coercive because typically the person with the power, the employer, is the one who selects the arbitrator and selects the venue and, you know, selects all and really stacks the deck in their own favor. So that's, that's a long way of saying that an arbitration clause in this context isn't terribly unusual. But what is, I think, interesting is the fact that there have been many people who have leaked against the Trump administration. Again, see Michael Cohen, see Steve Bannon, see Sam Nunberg. None of them see Stormy Daniels, see Karen McDougal, all these people who have had NDA, who either definitely or presumably have had NDAs with the Trump campaign or the White House or the Trump organization and have violated them and have not had action taken against them. What's so interesting is that the one person the president has chosen to actually take action against is Omarosa. And I think that's significant 
whether it's a symbolic gesture or not, it shows that he's scared. It shows that he's scared that she actually has something or she could release something that could be incredibly damaging to him. Because, again, it's not just a matter of she saying these things. It's a matter of her having evidence to back it up. And if that evidence is released, it could be very bad for him. But, but here, here's, here's the thing, and, and Ken, I'll go to you, and then I'll go back to Sharma with this. We said the same thing about Stormy Daniels. We said the same thing about McDougal. We said the same thing when they raided Michael Cohen. We said the same thing about Paul Manafort. We said the same thing about Michael Flynn. And yet the Teflon Don still manages to go untouched and unscathed. Uh, Admiral Ken, do we really believe that this is going to be any different? Or is there a chance that you know, a self-absorbed, failed uh, reality TV starlet wannabe could be the one person that takes down this administration. As I said at the beginning of this, um, but for her gender and her color, Donald Trump has hired himself. And I think that um, if if it's possible for a failed reality uh, starlet wannabe uh, to to have uh, this kind of a destructive effect on the presidency, she's probably the person. Um, granted, you know we we did say you know you know the same things with regard to okay here it is here it is here it is with those other cases that you uh, you pointed out. Um, my only comment is that if you look at Stormy Daniels and the fight and the fact that we haven't really heard a lot from Michael Avenatti in the last few weeks and in, in days. He's, he's been pretty quiet. And other, than the both, fact, both, other than the fact that he decided he's going to announce on uh, TV on Sunday that he's considering a run for 2020 for the Democratic yeah. bid for president. But, 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 but with regard to the case, he's been pretty quiet. And the one thing that, that Stormy Daniels and Amorosa says that they have in common is that they've both had conversations with Robert Mueller. So maybe it's a function of timing. Maybe it's a function of the fact that um, this is just one more log on a, on a, on a, 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 a I guess, a slowly uh, growing fire uh, in, the, in the White House. Uh, I don't know. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's anybody on this call that can walk away from a discussion about this and say this is a good thing for the administration and, and that uh, it makes them smell a little bit rosier than they did the day before. Sharma, you agree with Admiral Ken? Um, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> Sorry, that well, was a long Long pondering. Well, that, sounded, that sounded painful, Sharmila. I don't know. I just <laughs> thanks, thanks for elaborating, Sharmila. You know, it's the great thing about talk radio that we do. <laughs> uh, I'm going to let that be the last word. Why not? Uh, all right, we're obviously going to be monitoring the situation, and and this seems to be breaking literally hour by hour with new revelations. Uh, as we said, uh, Amarosa has come out and said on uh, MSNBC during the 2 o'clock hour with Katie Turr that uh, she possibly does have more tapes uh, she will be releasing. She did say that she is 
going to blow the whistle on the corruption, quote unquote, in this administration. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, when we come back, uh, we've got uh, primaries Tuesday, so that means they're probably voting somewhere. In this instance, they're voting in Wisconsin and Minnesota, as well as up in New England. We're going to talk about last week's uh, primaries and special elections, and then what's happening this week, and uh, a blue wave. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. We are Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Russ Moderator Justin Russell. Joining me from New York City, Sharma Chari, in the Sunshine State of Florida, Admiral Ken Carradine. Audrey Howerton is somewhere between Lake George and Cape Cod. And we are talking about elections. We're talking about the new elections uh, that are going on today in places like Minnesota and Wisconsin. We also want to talk about what happened last week. Let's start with what happened last week. Uh, in case you did not 
see it. Uh, there was a special election, and all eyes last Tuesday were on the results coming in from the 12th Congressional District of Ohio, where uh, a, uh, a state senator, Republican Troy Balderson, took on a new up-and-comer, a young up-and-comer, whose star seems to be on the rise, Franklin County recorder, the Democrat in that race, Danny O'Connor. Now, as we stated last week, this is a a race that Trump won handily, or a uh, district that Trump won handily. It was a a district that the Cook Report has high as plus 11 Republican. But when they finally got down to counting the votes, uh, with a less than 2,000 vote margin, uh, Troy Balderson uh, beat Danny O'Connor, although there are still uh, vote, provisional votes that are still being counted. Uh, there are still other uh, provisional and absentee ballots that have yet to be identified. But for the most part, uh, it looks like that O'Connor will have a hard time Beating in this special election Which for the record This person who was Elected is only going to be Seated for about Two weeks Uh, It's actually till the end Of the year but uh, The Congress Is only in session between Now and The November midterms only about Maybe a week and a half two weeks And then a few weeks in December Uh, That being said Let's look at that Ohio race. Admiral Ken, I want to start with you. Was was this a victory for the Republicans? Uh, was it a true victory that, I mean, because Donald Trump did a victory lap via Twitter for the next day and a half. Well, well yeah, it was absolutely. Um, you know, in a in a uh, in an environment where there is. You know, kind of a prediction of a blue wave. Um, uh, I think that any time that uh, a, a Trumpite, because uh, I, I make the distinction, distinction between Republicans and Trumpites, a, a Trumpite um, can uh, can pull out a win. Yeah, it's a victory, and it basically gives credence to the uh, to some of the things the president's saying is that things aren't nearly as bad as the folks in the fake media say that they are. So, um, you know, I, I, I was watching it with, 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 with great interest um, and was wondering how it was going to turn out. Uh, I, quite frankly, I was surprised when they, when they uh, decided to do the recount um, that, uh, that the Republican won. But, you know, uh, it is what it is. Charlotte, can, can the Democrats claim victory as well? I mean, I think they have a lot to be celebrating, considering the fact that, you know, they raised voter turnout. They lost. They lost. I mean, well, the votes aren't counted yet. The The margin right now is 0.8%, and there are still 8,000 ballots that are uncounted. So there, there, there is a there's not there is a certainly a non-zero possibility that O'Connor could end up triumphant. But um but I think they have a lot to celebrate, the fact that they had quite high turnout in, you know, a midterm special election is pretty um, is pretty impressive. The fact that they came so close 
to victory in a district, as you said, that has historically been, you know, plus 12, plus 11 Republican. That is, you know, that is a lot to that's a lot to work with. And I think that if the Democrats can continue to refine their strategy, they could have an upset in November. No, no doubt in my mind. But but here's here's the thing is, you you know, I I hear a lot of Democrats that sit there and they talk about, well, we, you know, this is such a great victory here. Uh, You know, we've won special elections before. Well, the special elections you won, let's look at the Alabama special election Senate race. Uh, You beat a child molester. Okay. That that doesn't seem too hard. Again, why is this? Why look is, at the margin there. Why should this have not been a victory? Because you're still fighting a demographic battle, Justin. Because I mean, you're still in a dis- there's there's a reason this district has leaned Republican for for you know the last forty years. It's because the demographic composition, the socioeconomic composition, is that of people who are more likely you know Republican voters. And so the key for the Democrats is to either convince some of those people to change their affiliation or to change their votes for this election and say, look, the president's policies aren't working, the Republicans' parties, the Republican Party's policies aren't working, and to actually get those existing Republican voters to change their votes or to find new voters and get them to vote Democratic. And I think that, you know, that second pillar is what they have really been leaning on. And so, again, I think that if they can find more of those voters or do a better job in their messaging and convincing existing Republican voters to switch party lines this election or doing a good enough job of tying Balderson to the president's unpopularity, then they could definitely pull out a victory. Alabama Alabama was uh, a unique unique situation uh, in that – other than the uh, fact that, that, that the Republican uh, Party of Alabama uh, voted uh, a child molester into the primary? It's no fun when you ask and answer your own questions, dude. So. <laughs> <laughs> and also, remember that Roy Moore was well on his way to victory until that Washington Post report came out. Yeah, and I think the other reason that Alabama was a special case, and I think it's something that the Democratic Party really needs to take a look at. Okay, so – it was the first time that that Democratic voters came out of the woodwork to vote since the election of Barack Obama. And so not only did you have a tremendously controversial candidate in the form of Roy Moore, you also had a, a, a get-out-the-vote machine, the likes of which Alabama hadn't seen since, uh, since, since, since Barack Obama ran for president. And I'm, my, my fear is that um, the complacency that we've talked about on this show um, is is not going to be um, shaken up enough, even by President Trump's bad behavior, to overcome uh, what's been pretty much a, a, a Republican run of the tables the, the last few years. And um, I don't think, I, you know, while I don't think you're going to see a red wave. Uh, I'm I'm also hesitant to to, to categorize what we're going to see in November as a blue wave. I think it's just going to be, you know what, few, uh, the the Republican Party is going to hold on to a few seats. Democratic Party is going to hold, going to going to take a few seats. But at the end of the day, uh, unless unless there's some serious message development and some serious get out the vote campaigning going on, the likes of which we saw in Alabama last year. 
I don't think you're going to see much in the way of a difference in the how things are right now. Right. Sharmila, you know, here's here's the thing is, it strikes me that the Democrats missed an opportunity. Uh, now, now, granted, I, I I will concede that the fact that we are talking less than one percent in a Republican leaning district that Cook had up at eleven points at one time is a shallow victory, but it's still a shallow one at best. Uh, Did the Democrats miss an opportunity to really drive the stake in the ground saying we're here and we're blue and we're pissed off as hell? I mean, again, I don't see how the opportunity was missed. I think they really went full force for the opportunity and – and came up a little short, right, either because they didn't have the voters or their messaging wasn't good enough to convince enough people to switch party affiliations. I think you can also but say, look, you know. I mean, you, you know, well, the also, you, can also, you can also look at the choice of candidate, right? Like, not a lot of people, nobody was on either side of the aisle was especially enthused about Balderson or O'Connor. And so, yes, you can say the Democrats missed an opportunity to put a more charismatic, more, you know, progressive or more whatever, can, you know, more diverse whatever you will, candidate out front and center out for, you know, for this election. And I think that you could probably say that for a lot of these elections coming up. Wait, 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 wait. If you look at, if you look at O'Connor, O'Connor, O'Connor reminds me a lot of a very brand new congressman out of Southwestern Pennsylvania. Are you speaking of Mr. Connor Lamb? Yes. So I think I think there are certainly parallels, but at the same time, O'Con- you know, Connor Lamb had a better biography. He was a veteran. He was tall and strapping, and you know, really more progress. You know, tailored his message really well to to okay. the um, to his district, while still maintaining a pretty good you know pretty good progressive credentials with the rest of the country. And he had a lot of money coming his way. And you couple that with the fact that Rick Saccone was a pretty underwhelming candidate. I think here, wait, you know, so the, the scales were tipped much more in Lamb's favor, I think, whereas oh, in this case... Oh, wait a minute. Sharmila. Look, Sharmila. You, wait you a had minute, a lot of the same input. O'Connor, O'Connor, O'Connor was a no-name commodity in the district, now, especially in the heavily populated section of the district in Franklin County. He was the... Uh, uh, Franklin, he was a Franklin County... Um, Recorder. Uh, what was, huh? He was a Franklin County recorder. Look, I'm not saying yeah. that. I'm saying that there are parallels to between Connor Lamb and Danny O'Connor, but at the end of the day, I think Connor, uh, Danny O'Connor was a slightly less strong candidate than Connor Lamb, and his opponent, Troy Balderson, was a stronger con- candidate than, uh, what's his name, than Connor Lamb's opponent, Rick Saccone. Yeah. So when you look yeah. at the balance of the scales, the scales tipped more in Connor Lamb's favor overall in that district than they did in Danny O'Connor's. Admiral Ken, are you buying this? Are you drinking this Kool-Aid? Yeah, I I, I I begrudgingly have to agree with Sharmila. Really? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Don't gloat. It's so not attractive on you, Sharmila. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Go ahead, Ken. No, I, I, that was it. I, I, I think she's right. Uh, I think that um, 
you know, here's the thing that I, I think we haven't talked about was just the sheer amount of outside money um, that's coming into these campaigns. And the fact that um, not only uh, was that the case in Alabama, but is also the case in, in the, in, in the, uh, the Connor Lamb election and, and the, 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 this last one this week. And what I, I find interesting is where, where, where is the money coming from? Is there a strategy other than just we just got to beat those guys? Uh, how are, and Justin, you've worked campaigns before. How do you decide how much money to put over here in, can, in can, uh, campaign A versus campaign B? And, you know, so the fact that you had a, had a district that had always been you know, like plus, was it plus 10, plus 12 Republican, yet all that money came in from the Democratic Party and they still couldn't pull it off. That's got to be disappointing. Oh, right? absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I, I will say is, you know, are we, you know, are we seeing a situation, Sharmila, where the economy is going to trump Trump? I think is that, that what happened you know, maybe in Ohio? You're already seeing it in terms of the people who are coming out and saying, you know, directly small business owners and workers who are saying, look, these tariffs are hurting us. They are not economically beneficial. And yes, there are a lot of Trump voters who are still, you know, putting their faith in the president saying, you know, we understand that there will be short term pain, but we believe him when he says that long term, these are going to benefit us and we're willing to wait it out to see if his promises actually are delivered on. So I think that, yes, the economy is going to have a strong impact on, you know, on, on the outcome of these elections, you might not see it in 2018, but you'll certainly see it in 2020. Yeah, Admiral Ken, is 2020 the answer? Yeah, well, you know, I, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what's going to happen in November. Uh, I, I, you know, I think I think the Democratic Party is, if if they're not looking at doing some messaging around what this tariff thing has done to, to American companies like Harley-Davidson and what it's doing to, I think it's South Carolina with the BMW, uh, the BMW plant. Um, I think, I think there's much hay that can be made of, of the president's economic um, policies in the near term. And so rather than wait for uh, the next presidential election, I think quite frankly, um, we need to try and break the American habit of notoriously not thinking about the long game and only thinking about what's, what's right in front of us. Charmla, you know, was this an opportunity that, or let me rephrase this, as we get closer to November, is there a possibility that Democrats could get these these little factions of Republicans living in exile, the ones who listen to Joe Scarborough and Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson and Bill Kristol and those folks. Don't forget uh, George Will. Democrats, what's that? So don't forget George Will. Don't forget George Will. Are, is there a possibility or does the blue wave even happen if the Democrats don't corner that segment of the Republican Party? 
Um, I think it's certainly going to be a contributor to a blue wave if a blue wave happens. I think that what you see in these elections is that there's such an interesting confluence of circumstances that leads to a switch of, you know, a, a district switching from red to blue. And I think that has a lot. It has to do with the candidate that each party puts forward. It has to do with the circumstances of why that seat is open in the first place. Going back to Connor Lamb in that election, I think you also had uh, more Democratic momentum from the fact that, you know, of how, why Tim Murphy resigned his seat under that sort of cloud of scandal. And that, I think, also pushed things in the Democrats' favor. You know, you again, you have the money coming in. You have sort of the candidates' individual positionings, both within, you know, within their exact within their district, and then kind of how they're positioning themselves nationwide. Whether or not the Republican candidate is aligning himself with the president, or more aligning himself with, you know, the traditional establishment wing of the Republican Party. So I think, I mean, to your point, yes, the the Democrats have to um, have to win over the kind of never Trump Republicans, but I think in a large way they already have. I think that you know the the point of the never Trump party, the never Trump Republicans voting Democrat is not so much because they agree with Democratic policies or they ever will. It's that they are so disgusted with the president and they are so disgusted by the GOP's inability to stand up to him when he violates Republican orthodoxy on things like free trade. And on things like, you know, multilateralism and standing by our allies. So I think in that in that sense, for the never Trump Republicans to stick to vote Democrat, it's actually going to really rely on the president and him continuing to violate Republican orthodoxy and continuing to act like a boor. So I think that's actually out of the Democrats' hands. Admiral, Admiral Ken, is, is what Sharma describes doable? I think it is if there's if, if there's a compelling if there's a compelling message in the part of the Democrat uh, of the Democrats. I you know I don't I, I'm new to the the, the 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 watching of political tea leaves. Remember one of the reasons that you brought me on the panel was because one I was military and two I was from outside the Beltway. And what I will tell well, you though. Well, let's also not forget that, also you're black too. Oh yeah. Well, okay. Well, I, I, my my life as a token continues. What can I say? Um, uh, but you know, I think that it's been my experience that people get up in droves to vote for something. Seldom do they get up in droves to vote against something. It could be that Donald Trump is gonna gonna change that that mindset, but I certainly wouldn't bet on it. Uh, I think the tide, uh, the sun, the sun will continue to rise in the east and set in the west, and it takes something of a, of a, a fairly large uh, terrestrial event to make that to make that stop happening. And I and I put the same kind of weight on uh, trying to get uh, people to change their, their their style and how they how they vote. Is this something that in order for the, in order for the Democrats to be successful, there's got to be a plan ahead that does not include Nancy Pelosi? Denny Stoyer or Chuck Schumer? I think that, you know, I, I think while, while the president will never have to run against Hillary Clinton again, um, the, the, the next best target for him is Nancy Pelosi. And um, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not your, your typical Republican that, that, that goes into apoplexy every time I hear her name or, or even Hillary Clinton's at that, at that point. Um, but there are a lot of people in our party that do. 
and there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party that have got similar misgivings about about uh, former Speaker Pelosi. And I think any kind of strategy, you know, going forward needs to take that into account. You know, I'll, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because at some point uh, in my early days on, on the show, when Dan, Dan Lipner was trying to tell us how to be better Republicans, I always said, be careful of a Democrat trying to tell you how to be a better Republican. Similarly speaking, be careful of a Republican trying to tell Democrats how to be better Democrats. Jarmola, I mean, <laughs> is there the possibility that there's a future that will corral some of these independents and Republicans in exile? Do you have to sacrifice the goddess herself? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I never really understood why Nancy Pelosi has become this huge bogeyman for the Republicans. I think that it's primarily, I mean, this is just my view, but it seems sort of like a sexist knee-jerk reaction to the fact that Hillary Clinton is no longer politically relevant. And so, therefore, they go for the next high-ranking woman politician in a pantsuit. And, you know, it's Nancy Pelosi. Oh, come on. Come on. I will say say that, that the animus toward Nancy Pelosi was there before the animus toward Hillary Clinton. It's it's always been there. Just that it's only because President uh, uh, Secretary Clinton ran for president that it became as, as fervent and as well-known as it, as it was. But there's always been some, some antipathy toward Nancy Pelosi on the part of Republicans. Oh, right, I'm sure. I mean, and, you know, there's, as I'm sure, there's antipathy towards Chuck Schumer or any other prominent Democrat. I Look, and... You know, you're right. Again, I have never understood the sort of antipathy, antipathy on both the right and the left towards Nancy Pelosi and making her into this bogeyman. However, you know, there the fact remains that there is opposition to her on both the right and the left. Right to the right, she's a convenient scapegoat and a convenient villain for them to say, oh, if you vote for the Democrats, it's going to be more years of Nancy Pelosi and her, you know, terrorism and her socialism. And to the left... Nancy Pelosi re- represents an, a failed establishment that hasn't been representing them adequately and hasn't done enough to get real progressive change done in, you know, in our legislature. So I think there's a very real possibility that, you know, that the party will, you know, be reborn and kind of, you know, this blue wave may may arrive on the backs of a lot of candidates who have said that they will not endorse her for speaker if, you know, if Democrats regain the majority in, in Congress, and that's something that and you look, you if know, you look at O'Connor, the party O'Connor structure needs Ohio to be prepared much, for. But O'Connor in Ohio pretty much came up and said that he would not endorse Pelosi in speakership role, quoting that we need new direction, we need new youth. Um, that does not bode well for the minority leader, Sharmila. No, it does not. And, and you know, she has a lot of leverage. She's got a lot of years of experience and she has a lot of leverage in her favor, including the fact that she is the most successful fundraiser on behalf of Democratic candidates that the party has. But at the same time, the same thing about Reince Priebus and he was a disaster. Reince Priebus has never been on the ballot for anything, though. That's apples and oranges. And Reince Priebus has never been a, you know, Reince Priebus for you know, whatever his flaws and his foibles, has never, you know, held this role of boogeyman to the Democrats the way Nancy Pelosi does to Republicans, right? No one was talking about, like, oh, if you elect Donald Trump, then Reince Priebus will be let loose on the country. No, nobody cares about Reince Priebus. People do care, for whatever reason, Nancy Pelosi has become this sort of, you know, reviled figure. 
And so, you know, whether that's deserved or not, the fact is that, you know, she has become a lightning rod for criticism on both ends of the aisle. And, yes, it, you are absolutely right that she is in danger of losing her speakership even if this, if this blue wave comes to pass. Because if enough I mean, Charlotte, does it have are, anything to do with the fact that Nancy Pelosi is not this sweet, innocent political housewife from the Bay Area? The fact that she is the daughter, she is her father's daughter – who in fact was the big political mega boss of of Baltimore, Maryland. I mean, the fact that she runs gangster type political operations in the Democratic side of the house, you don't think that that's maybe time for a change? I mean, look, if she were a man, they'd be saying, oh, she's a strong force and she, you know, inherited this title and she looked up to her father and she, you know, got his strong work ethic and his, you know, his strong political machinations, right? Oh, come on. No one's, no one's talking about, you know, pick, uh, I'm trying to think of, pick of a political scion, but no one's talking about any man who is the scion of a political dynasty. No one's talking about Patrick Kennedy of saying, oh, he's not just some sweet fishing lad from Cape Cod, you know, he's a rough and tumble guy, and he, you know, uses his family's connections, and he uses his family name to get ahead. No one faults him for that. The fact that you're you saying, mean, oh, you mean Nancy Pelosi, you know. They've never said that about any Bush politician, including 43 Jeb, uh, including George P. out in Texas. They're not saying that? Look, I mean, I think you, you have a point that American, the American public generally has turned on political dynasties. They're not, you know, being part of a political dynasty is no longer seen as something favorable. The American people generally are looking for new blood, fresh blood in our electoral system, and they are looking for people who, you know, aren't part of, you know, established interests and don't have their own kind of agenda coming into or a perceived agenda coming into office or aren't coming into office on the strength of their family's name versus their own accomplishments and their own beliefs. So I uh, certainly so, agree um, with that. I do think, so, I think, wait, however, wait, that ever, Nancy, I think that, wait, wait, except, to, ahead, except to D.C. insiders, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is necessarily associated with dynastic politics. I do think what? she's associated with the establishment. She's associated with the establishment. Look, she's been in Congress for a long, long time. She's associated what? with the establishment. She's associated with the existing power structure, she's seen as being old and not in touch with the millennial voters that the party needs to court. You know, she's white and, again, kind of not necessarily seen as a representative of the African-American and Latino communities that the party wants to court. So I think that that has a lot more to do with why there's, you know, why people are so disaffected from her than, you know, the fact that she is the daughter of some guy. So, Sharma, just out of curiosity, when did they legalize uh, marijuana in New York City? Ha! Huh. Very uh, funny, Justin. And it was 2015. You are <laughs> good answer. You are high. You are high. You think there are people in her in her own party? You you have heard Congressman Al, God rest his soul, on this show, publicly denounce Nancy Pelosi as a thug. Uh, and it has nothing to do with – she's not a dynasty. I mean, her father was known in Baltimore, but it's just that her type of old-school 
uh, backroom politics. Is that what you were going to say? Dare I say backroom politics? Sure. We'll pimp the name of the show. That old school stuff has got to go. It hasn't vote. It it didn't vote her well. She lost her majority. She's pretty much been vilified by those in her own party who are not convinced that she's part of the future. I mean, Admiral Ken, help me out here. Well, I, I'm going to bow to to the knowledge that, that you and Charmaine have, have espoused thus far on the merits of Nancy Pelosi. Um, I, I'll say this. Um, I, I think just like there's a schism inside the Democratic Party, I mean inside the Republican Party, there's one inside the Democratic Party right now. We've got we've got never Trumpers versus President Trump. Uh, they've got, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna blow her name, Sharma. So help me out. The young woman that just ran for Congress that is a Bernie Sanders uh, acolyte. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Yes, thank you. And 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 your your normal Democrats like like the ones in my family who are possibly, with the exception. You know, of, of the fact they can't bring themselves to stomach people like Donald Trump probably are more on, more on the conservative side of things as Democrats than not. So the the the, the problem, quite frankly, now is the same for for both parties. They've got to find a way to motivate their voters with a message that reaches across those particular ilks inside of their own parties, and and at the same time attract some dis- disaffected folks. From the other party, the challenge remains the same. Um, I don't think that that Nancy Pelosi, um, Nancy Pelosi, is going to be Speaker of the House again because of the aforementioned challenges that the Democrats have got with regard to to, to getting people out to vote. Uh, I don't think that um, that it's going to make much difference one way or the other uh, that that she's not because I think, quite frankly, Sharma hit the nail on the head. That people today are looking for people who are not who have not been in politics all of their adult lives, even though there's a great deal of corporate knowledge that can be used there. They're looking for brand new, fresh faces that have got no idea what the hell they're doing for some reason, and they want to turn their government over to these people. I right. don't understand why that is, but that's the case. Right. So the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, I think that 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 the number of people who are Democrats that are running for office. Who are going to turn away from Nancy Pelosi isn't because she's part of a uh, some heretofore major political machine. She's just not what she's not the she's not the flavor of the decade. That's it. She's not the flavor of the decade. And they're going to be looking for something or someone that is. And all they know, all they can agree on, whether they, for one reason or not or another, she's not the flavor they want. That's it. Is is. Well, let's take a break real quick. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion because we haven't talked about what happened in Kansas in that fiasco. We haven't talked about what's happening possibly in Wisconsin, which could be a shocker. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of last week's elections and this week's primaries that are coming up. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio from your national capital region in Washington, D.C., We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here in the National Capital Region, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me, Sharmila Ashari and Admiral Ken Carradine. Hey, uh, we're going to continue our discussion about the uh, politics of what's going on in the primaries, what's happening here in special elections. We just got done talking about what was going on in Ohio and some of the anchor that may be either Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi slash Chuck Schumer. Let's take a little bit at that weird uh, gubernatorial Republican primary out in Kansas. Uh, This one gets even more bizarre. So in case you missed it, the incumbent uh, out there, the, the incumbent Republican governor, uh, uh, Jeff Collier, got into basically what amounted to a who can be more Trumpy fight with the Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, who pretty much did everything short but tattoo a Trump campaign sign on his back. Uh, that race is still for all intents and purposes, undecided. Uh, at the last count, uh, Jeff, I mean, uh, Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State, the Republican, the Trumper, uh, had 126,257 votes. The incumbent, Governor Jeff Collier, had 126,066 votes, basically putting it less than uh, 100 votes between them. This is this is an interesting race because now, just by de facto, it is less than 0.1% difference. It goes into an automatic recount. What I have not found out, but was a piece of controversy last week, and it's since died out through other issues such as Manafort trials, etc. Um, what we do not know is that there was calls for the Secretary of State, who is still the Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, to recuse himself from the recount. Uh, he was going back and forth. He said he was, then he said he wasn't, then he said he was. Uh, Admiral Ken Sharma, did you guys see, did he actually finally recuse himself permanently? I think he did. He did. Okay, well, good. So there's some common sense running out there in the Jayhawk State. Fantastic. Um, what, what surprised you more about this race or this, this primary race, Admiral Ken, was it the power of the Trump or the establishment that Republicans despise now? I, I, I think the, the thing that surprised me was that, um, even with all of the the just the sheer storm of crap uh, surrounding the president, um, that 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 Republicans' strategy of embracing him and holding him close to their bosom is is a winning proposition for them. I just it, it defies logic. I, I, I you know, I, I granted, 
I'm I'm only 59. I have only been looking at that at politics since uh the uh, the presidential since the uh um the Bush Clinton um uh, campaign um right after the first Gulf War. Um but I I've just never seen anything like it. I, I don't understand. I, I just it, it is like my party has has sold its soul. Um and decided that that this guy is the second coming, and it's in and, and, and it, it just flies in the face of logic, and yet these people are winning with it. I just don't get it. That surprised me, because Charlotte. I mean they're saying they're they're saying the same stuff. I mean I even watch Fox News now. Fox News is carrying the same stuff, the news side of things that that the the other news outlets are are, are carrying, yet. People have turned a blind eye and a deaf ear and decided that they're going to believe President Trump um, over their lying eyes. And this, and Chris Kobach um, basically wrapped himself in, in the in the in the Trump flag, and it's I think it's, he's gonna he's gonna ride across the other uh, victory line with it. Sharmila Chari, is this more a we love Trump or a we hate establishment? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that. Oh, come you know, on, you can't write that sentence. Come on. <laughs> Pick a side, Look, Charmela. Sometimes there are more than two sides to a story. What can I say? Uh, we live in a nuanced world, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> um, you know, I think that you know, the president's base has proved remarkably resilient that no matter what he throws at them or what new scandal comes, you know, comes down the pipeline, they're willing to stick with him. They like the fact that he's a disruptor. They like the fact that he's willing to say things that other politicians aren't willing to say. They like the fact that he's shake. He doesn't, you know, abide by protocols and he does things differently. And that, you know, he, you know, and they agree with him that his unorthodox approach is done to get results that other politicians haven't been able to achieve. So I think, you know, to your point, a lot of them, you know, agree with the president and his policies, they might privately think he's an idiot or, you know, a scumbag, but at the same time, they'll vote for him and they'll support him. So I think you see the same thing happening now, which is there is a disgust with the establishment. There is a, you know, just like on the Democratic side, there is a desire to inject new blood into the political system and to inject a dose of sort of, as the kids would say, DGAF. What is DGAF? Don't give a. I'll let you fill in the. Ah, ask. oh, oh, okay, yeah, it was still family show, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, here's here's what gets me though, is, and and we talked about it last week, and 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 it's still, and I think the results of that Kansas race really put it into. Theoretically, Chris Kobach doesn't stand a chance against a fairly popular seated governor in, in Kansas. The power that Donald Trump has to his base is literally like brains to zombies. I mean, look at Mark Sanford and Katie Arrington in, in uh, South Carolina. She should have had a snowflake's chance in hell, and yet she beat him. She beat a man who had never lost a political election in 25 years. Uh Here's the difference. Going, you know what? Giving giving credit giving credit to my 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 point. People vote for something versus voting against something. But here's here's the difference. Here's the difference between Chris Kobach 
Uh, Chris Kobach, and I put him in the same boat as Ron DeSantis, who's running for governor in Florida. Here's the difference between Katie Harrington and a Chris Kobach and a Ron DeSantis. And now, full disclosure, uh, I know Carrie, Katie Arrington. I consider her a, a, a friend. I, I've, I've, uh, I've always uh, I, I've known her for several years. She is really good at what she does. The difference that Katie Arrington did is, I, I think it was more of a, Carrie Arrington knew how to play the political game in a district where Mark Sanford pretty much went in there complacent, knowing the fact that, hey, I'm Mark Sanford, damn it, I'm going to get elected. And it's it's the same situation that happened with Eric Cantor several years ago. I think Mark Sanford got got cantered. The difference here is, is that literally – you look at Chris Kobach and you look at Ron DeSantis, they are literally selling themselves politically and tying themselves to this to this tree that is Trump that, I mean, it's a big risk. It's a big risk to do. And they're taking out good people, which really bugs. They're taking out good Republicans, which bugs me even more. Uh, call your call your was fairly popular. I mean, he was uh, John Kasich by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he wasn't a Larry Hogan, but he was still fairly popular. He comes in, and what should have been an easy win, now if Chris Kobach wins, the Democrats have the opportunity to flip that well, governor's mansion, which doesn't help the Republicans. Same thing with Ron DeSantis. If If Adam Putnam wins the primary next week or in two weeks. If Adam Putnam wins that primary in Florida, the Republicans retain the uh, the Republicans will retain the governor's mansion in Tallahassee. If Ron DeSantis wins, I think Ms. Graham, the Democrat, has every shot because he's literally radioactive out of the gate. All they, all she has to do is point and say, "Do you want Donald Trump in your governor's mansion?" There's a lot of people. Florida's changing around, and that's not going to work. It, it, to me, Sharmla, I would be begging that every gubernatorial candidate running this year does what DeSantis and Kovac did. Look, I mean, you've seen the the Republican Party is is facing a serious problem, which is. For their candidates to win primaries, they have to take more extreme right positions, and yet those positions will end up alienating them in the general election. Right now, the, we think. the Republican we think right now Republican candidates are seeing that you know the president still has a golden touch in primaries. That if the president comes out and rallies for them or endorses them, they have bigger turnout with his base, and they end up winning. And, and that's not something to be taken lightly. They've seen that the Republican you know, primary electorate punishes candidates who speak out against the president or who criticize him. But at the same time, they see that the president has an overall low national approval rating and that you know, by sticking with him so kind of – by sticking with him so faithfully, they're going to alienate pretty much every Democratic voter 
and may not be able to win over the people who are in the mushy middle. So this is, you know, again, I hate to use this word because I feel like it's been overused, but this is just another symptom of the existential crisis that's been taking over, that, you know, the Republican Party has been in the throes of ever since Donald Trump clenched the Republican nomination. And I think that they're going to continue to grapple with while he's president. Unless unless something massive happens to disrupt his popularity with his base or to really, you know, shake his credibility as the president of the United States. And that could be something to do with the Mueller investigation. It could be an N-word tape being released. It could be a lot of things. But so long as Donald Trump retains the faithful support of his base and remains a salient public, you know, public and political figure, the Republicans are going to have to deal with this issue. I don't think it'll be an N-word issue. No, but Admiral Ken, here's what what concerns me as a Republican, is if you take a Chris Kobach, he wins, and, you know, he wins, let's say he does win, in fact, I'm still not convinced that Collier doesn't pull this out, I think it will be Collier on the ticket, we will maintain, but let's say DeSantis beats um, Adam Putnam in Florida. In the primary, he has literally had his baby in a cage in a Trump ad for his own election in the primary. He is literally gone all in on Trump. Can he effectively win the Republican primary by being Trump, 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 and then move more centrist in the general? Does he survive that? Can he do? Uh, I, I I think that the only person that can do that dance uh, effectively is, is Donald J. Trump himself. Um, I don't think that um, that your mere mortals can pull that off. I think Sharma's right. I, I think I think that. That the only way that, that that Republicans are winning their primaries right now is by drawing near to the president, and I think I think uh, that when when in a general election uh, videotape is shown relentlessly um, showing what they did and what they said, uh, I think depending on what's going on around the president, um, that may have. A negative effect on on the, on the Republicans running for office. It depends on what's going on around the president at the time. But that said, he's been a master of distraction. Um, I do believe that regardless of what uh, Mueller comes up with, I don't think President Donald Trump is going to cede power uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I I just think that that there's there's November is going to be really interesting. It's going to be very interesting. I think that's when we're going to find out whether uh, the president's uh, the president's behavior is going to um, is going to really have a negative effect in his ability to govern in the second half of his uh, of his uh, of his term. Sharmila, I mean, <laughs> I think Ken is totally right. Yeah, the the president has so far maintained this kind of, you know, Teflon coverage over himself, and I think that that's not going to change absent some sort of really bombshell finding. But 
again, it, it doesn't seem to affect him. Everything we everything we have on this guy, the guy still comes out clean. Yeah, I mean, look, it's we had this analogy, you know, during you know in 2016 when I was working on the Clinton campaign, which is the Republicans were very successful in what they did because they had, you know, imagine a plain white wall, and you throw a plate of spaghetti at it. That spaghetti stands out, right? And the Republicans were very effective at throwing spaghetti at the same two spots on the wall, right? Emails and Benghazi. They kept hammering those points, and those points really stood out. Whereas with Donald Trump, there are so many scandals. There's taxes, there's mistresses, there's Russia, there's, you know, creepy, his racism, there's his sexism, sexual assaulting women, you know, calling Mexican rapists. There's, there was such a scandal a day that it's like the entire wall is covered in spaghetti. And when that happens, nothing stands out anymore. You've become numb to all the spaghetti on the wall. And that's exactly what he does. That's why he you know, evades controversies by creating new controversies. It's been a very effective tool for him. And so I think, I think only- though, as, as the Mueller probe narrows in scope and as it gets closer to the president, and potentially if there are some really damaging tapes that Ms. Manigault Newman has that, you know, really prove, you know, him saying something incredibly offensive and incredibly terrible, which, I mean, again, if, you know, grab him by the P word didn't turn people off from voting for him, I I agree with, you know, Admiral Ken that, you know, a tape of him uttering a racial slur probably isn't, (laughs) isn't really going to have that big of an effect. But, you know, there needs to be something that can overwhelm that wall of noise in order to really crack his facade. And right now, it's all small stuff, and none of that makes a dent. And I, I think the only the only two things that, that come to mind that could basically stand out uh, are, one, if there's a homicide, or two, there's a child out of wedlock. And I say that tongue-in-cheek only because those are the only two things we haven't seen out of this guy yet. Are you saying yet, Ken? Yeah, I said yet. <laughs> Technically, Fantastic. I think one of his kids was out of wedlock, but then he married the mother later. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, we stand corrected now. Uh, the, the bottom line here is, and, and this is this is what we have to look at is, uh, is the economy keeping this? Republican train rolling. Admiral Ken. Yeah. I mean, what was this? Who was the guy? Uh, gosh, I'm drawing, drawing the blank. Uh, uh, Carvel. Is the economy stupid? Yeah. Sharma, you want to expand on that? I think it certainly helps. And I think the fact that And it's the fact that, you know, this president is still untested. I think that, you know, the presidents typically have a grace period of two years before voters really start to turn on them. Because, you know, at the beginning they say, look, it's only been a year. It's only been a year and a half. He's just gotten here. His, you know, his policies haven't really had a chance to take hold and be implemented. We don't know what's going to happen. And so I think that you – you know, we're still, you know, we're still in that grace period for the president, and we're blessed to have a, a growing economy and, you know, an economy where, you know, unemployment figures are low 
and you know you see help wanted signs all over the place indicating that you know the econ- that there are still jobs available for those who are willing to work in them um and i i think yeah that's certainly buoying the president and the republican party right now if something about that changes or if there's sort of a massive economic shock that happens that could turn very quickly but right now at the pace things are going people haven't seen that shock yet and so they're willing to give the president you know the benefit of the doubt I, I just want to note that I, yeah, that, go ahead. that I that that I, I basically I, I quoted James Carville. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, duly noted, Ken. Thank you, Admiral. Yeah. Um, if we're gonna we're gonna keep this going. I mean, look, we could spend a lot of time talking about the uh, gossipy Amorosa stuff. You know what? I, I, you know, I, I hate doing that. Uh, there's other things we're going to talk about when we come back. We're going to finish and talk about what's happening in Wisconsin, uh, why that's important. And uh, believe it or not, uh, Sharma, I'm going to need you to pick your brain. The Manafort defense team closed out their side of the trial without calling any witnesses. I need your I need your insight on that. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
Wing Politics. And we're back here in uh, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining us as they do every Tuesday, Sharmila Chari, Admiral Ken Carradine. And oh, look who's decided to check in. She is the former on-air talent and news producer for NBC News and ABC Television from the Windy City, Chicago. She's Laura Chavez. Hey, Laura. Hey, guys. How was your weekend? I was really good. Thank you. Lots of friends, good. lots of family. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Hey, uh, we were just talking about uh, the, the political races that we saw last week and the ones that we're looking at. Uh, the one that is of interest right now is the fact that Scott Walker, the uh, current Republican and arguable Trumpite that is running for his third term in Wisconsin, uh, you're out that way. Lord Chavez, what are you hearing about that race? Does, does, is, is there a possibility we see uh, a Walker third term, or is in fact is he vulnerable in today's primary? Um, while Chicago is close to Wisconsin, we are drastically different in political views. But uh, just from general Midwest tone, I I strangely think Walker's kind of safe right now. Not vastly safe. I know it's a thick field, but I think he's probably going to eke out a victory on this one. Uh, Charmaine, there are eight uh, Democrats that are looking to face Scott Walker, uh, the one that everybody, the, the kind of leading horse in this race right now is the state school superintendent, and that's Tony Evers. Uh, does, does he have what it's going to take to win over uh, everything outside of Madison? You know, I don't know. I think um, Tony Evers needs to make a really compelling case to suburban women, uh, you know, people who are he's really staked his candidacy on education and the fact that Scott Walker and the Republicans generally have been very bad for for education, for public education and for sort of, you know, children's futures, not to, to paraphrase Whitney Houston. And so I think that if Evers can do a good job of convincing suburban women, a.k.a. moms, that the Democrats will be better for, you know, will be better on education and will, you know, their policies will contribute to better educational opportunities for their children, then I think he could go a long way in securing a victory for himself. You know what? I love it when they check in like this 30 minutes before the end of the show. Joining us now is the man that we know. In fact, I'm not going to go in. It's just Dan. Dan Lipner, Esquire. <laughs> Daniel, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I'm just here <laughs> okay. for the most important part of the show when I'm here. That is the most important part of the show. Oh, wow. Okay. There's that. All right, genius. Tell me this. Does anybody beat Tammy Baldwin in that weird uh, that weird Senate race out in Wisconsin. Um, well, considering uh, the uh, Republicans in, in in Wisconsin have to deal with the president uh, going to war with Harley, 
Um, I'm going to go with no. Uh, I think I think he's pretty safe. Really? You think yep. so? Charmley, you agree with him? I do agree with Dan, my friend and colleague. Wow, wow. go figure. Hey, um, let's let's talk real quick about what's going on in uh, here inside the Beltway. While I've got the counselors on, uh, surprisingly, the uh, Paul Manafort case pretty much closed uh, the defense side after a prolonged uh, prosecution side. Without the defense basically closed out their case without calling a single witness. Now, it is noted that there are several sealed motions before the judge. Uh, Dan Lipner, that if I'm the prosecution, I'm a little nervous right now. Should they be? I don't think so. Uh, everything I've seen reported about judge while he is a bit unorthodox on the bench uh, he is also very fair he just runs a tight ship so it wasn't so much being unfair to the prosecution it's just he's a very hands-on judge the bigger concern is whether or not the uh, defense counsel's Jedi mind trick of these are not the tax sheets you're looking for is actually going to work is there a but we've heard rumors coming out of the um, federal courthouse in Alexandria that there that one of the motions could be a motion for a mistrial, and that there may be evidence for such. Is does the mistrial really damage the credibility of Paul Manafort, Charmela? No, a mistrial doesn't damage the credibility of Paul Manafort. It would be more, I think, detrimental to the prosecution because it shows. I mean, that... I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, does, does it Robert Mueller? Does it damage Robert Mueller's credibility in the bigger scheme? Uh, I, you know, that's a hard question to answer. I think that you know, anything short of an outright, you know, conviction for Manafort on a majority of the charges, I think, will damage. Mueller in the court of public opinion. But keep in mind that this is just the first of Paul Manafort's trials, and he has several more to go. So there, there is, you know, unfortunately, or, you know, for, fortunately, however you want to think about it, you know, the special counsel's office has not commented at all on sort of the outcomes of any of its investigations or any of the rumors swirling around them. And so even, you know, I think win or lose in this prosecution – they're likely not going to issue a statement or kind of, you know, do any sort of victory lap or, you know, or try to justify a defeat. And I think that if, you know, Manafort is found not guilty and Mueller's office doesn't come out with any sort of statement about that, that is going to diminish his credibility with the American people. And, you know, as much as I, you know, am boggled sometimes by Rudy Giuliani's, you know, quote unquote legal tactics, I think he has been doing a pretty good job about, you know, undermining the special counsel's credibility, you know, with the American people. And he's, you know, the polling shows that he is, he's, his message is resonating. Laura Chavez, is, is Rudy Giuliani crazy like a fox right now? Uh, definitely crazy. And I feel it kind of stumbles onto that old saying, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And, 
as zany as it sounds, he is actually doing a decent job. And uh, to kind of go back to what you just mentioned, or what you and Charmaine were just talking about, I think this is one of those cases where um, it can only, it won't hurt Manafort, but it could hurt Mueller in the public eye. Uh, just because I feel like everyone has already decided what they think about uh, Mueller. You are either pro-Mueller or, you know, you're adamantly on the witch hunt team. And the only risk that he is running right now is if uh, Manafort is not found guilty or a mistrial is found, then people are going to start questioning why this uh, or why everything hasn't wrapped up. I know there's a current call to wrap everything up by the midterm, and it's just not clear whether that's going to happen. And anything that won't, any sort of um, outcome from this trial that doesn't totally support everything that has been happening in the probe is just going to hurt any sort of public impact that he could have. Dan Whitmer, do you, do you agree with that? I mean, is Robert Mueller's future as special counsel dependent on him at least not blowing this first case? I mean, if Manafort gets off on this, that is going to be a huge problem. That said... He didn't pay his taxes to a rather big tune uh, of, of of millions of dollars, and not to mention the pesky little bank fraud that went along with it. So it's it, it's hard for me to see how the government loses this case. That said, anything is possible, but getting it a essentially jury nullification on this uh, it, it that would be real challenging. Um, as far as a mistrial, who cares? Uh, it, the, it, it, as long as it's not dismissed with prejudice, the, it'll just be retried. And if anything, that just gives an opportunity for more, for more analysis, for more people to see what's going on, and the people to solidify their own opinions and get more facts out there. That said, the, the Trumpies are, are, are seem to be immune to facts, so uh, they have their own little uh, world of Twilight. They're on the, the team werewolves. Uh, they just simply like them because they like them. we got a caller on the line. Caller, welcome to Backroom Politics. What's your question? Hey, uh, my question was... Um, what do any of us get out of politics? Because we're all going to die and be worn food soon eventually, so it really doesn't get matter, does it? Can wow, I take that one? That, yeah, go ahead, Admiral Ken. So what we get out of politics is involvement in our government. And I think the last election shows that if you don't pay attention to what's going on, if you take your eye off the ball, if you think everything's just going to flow along hunky-dory without a problem, then you might find your son or your daughter or your neighbor in a war that they may not come back from. You might find your total economic uh, structure that you've known to, uh, to exist be turned upside down, and you find yourself out of a job or your neighborhood polluted. So what we get out of politics is understanding the fact that our government is run by it, and the minute we take our eye off of it and we ignore it, we're going to be victims of it. That's a great answer. And I want to I follow uh, up. One more, we got and one I more follow, I'm going to follow up with that. Hold on. I want to follow up with that because, you know what, that, that, that question kind of bugs me, and I understand where you're coming from, but 
what we get out of politics is we each individual American has a personal responsibility to take interest in how they're governed. It's our right to vote. And what we've done recently is we've created a lazy electorate that doesn't take personal responsibility on how they're governed. We buy whatever we hear on 30-second sound bites. We buy whatever we see on the 24-hour news channels. Without doing any research or doing anything, it is our responsibility if we're going – this great gift that we've been given by our founding fathers has to be nurtured. We have to take care of it. In order to take care of it, we've got to have personal responsibility on how the government governs the electorate. And until we take personal responsibility back, we're going to be stealing with the whole same crap. And that's why we do this show every week. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy. But it's civil dialogue on an intelligent basis. Hey, you got another question, Paul? Sexy all the time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Caller, yeah, well, uh, you have one another... more question. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really quick. Um, well, the economy is going better. And um, unemployment's at an all-time low, especially in the black community. And don't tell me it's not sexy because I'm hard as a rock right now. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Well, congratulations. Appreciate the call. Uh, Admiral Ken, unemployment, we were talking about that earlier, seems to be the driving force in, uh, in, in, in keeping the Trump train going. Is there any way that this gets derailed, or is the economy that strong of an opioid for the electorate? Admiral Ken? Sorry, talking on mute never does anybody any good. Um, Thanks. I think, I think that um, um, the, the, the challenge becomes understanding that is this, is this, is this a long-term um, situation or is this, this the, the back end of, uh, of heretofore past policies? We've talked in the show when Alan was present about the fact that it takes anywhere from uh, three to, to four years before the effects of a president's policies really, really come to, come, come to grip. If that's true, this isn't because of anything that Donald Trump's done. This is stuff that was done uh, before he got here. I'm not saying – I'm a Republican. I'm not willing to, to basically say that, that, that Obama was right and Trump is wrong. All I'm saying is that science – as I've understood it from from school and from people like Alan Moore, who are much more learned in this than I will ever be, says that that this is this is this is the back end of policies that 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 uh, that Obama put in place. Um, I think the real answer to the question is, um, we talked about this in the last segment. I think it, does does Trump continue to do well if the economy is doing well? Well, yeah, he does. If, if at the end of uh, next year things start to go south and uh, the economy, the bottom falls out because of the tariffs and some of the other uh, things that we've discussed on this show, um, if that happens, then no, he doesn't do well. Uh, I think the, con- the economy is going to be a leading indicator of the president's long-term success and his, and his, uh, his legacy. 
And um, if, if uh, for whatever reason that does not come to pass, then I think we're we're looking at a whole different ball game here. Yeah, I hear you. Hey, uh, before we we're coming no, up on there, the, no, we, the uh, wait, there's a real time question here as far as the economy. So the fact that things are going are going well and unemployment is low, those are all good things. However, noting that the wages are still stagnant for the average American and for whatever wage increases people have seen, that's been eaten up almost immediately by inflation. Both energy prices as well as the cost of goods in that are in part affected by the president's tariff. So the question is, what happens when there's a hiccup? Also making note of these record deficits we are running during boom times. This is something we have not seen before. What happens when we actually do need to tap the well when there's a problem? So the president's laying the groundwork for a real, real nightmare because we're not going to have much more to go with once something goes wrong. So he's riding this with his high 30% approval rating with a gangbusters economy. What happens when we hit a bump? It's a fair question. I mean, Lord Chavez, I mean, is, is, is Trump riding an air bubble when it comes to the economy, I mean, as we get closer to midterms, could this bubble pop and all of a sudden we start seeing a blue wave coming out of the release there? It's possible, but I'm more so than a blue wave. I think we're on the precipice of a female wave. I think we have a lot of women running on both sides of the aisle who they're the ones that are actually going to take a big push in this, hopefully in this cycle, maybe in 2020, who knows. Um, But yes, to get back to your core question, I think one of the main things that Trump kind of can kind of hang his hat on right now is a really strong economy. And every uh, strong uh, Trumper is kind of looking at this and and has something to point to. And I think that's one of the real strengths he has right now. Right now there is something that everyone can point to and say, this is going well. Jobs are, you know, 4.1%. Jobs are appearing out of nowhere, going to bring back all sorts of industry, keeping America great again or whatever. But I think if that does start to decline, I think we're going to see a real questioning. I don't know if it will be any sort of reckoning. I don't know if his, uh, the Trumpers are going to flee a ship. But I think we will see people start to question his uh, motives, his realities, his general attack on things like the economy, like tariffs, like sanctions. Um, do I think it'll be enough to have any sort of massive impact? I think they're still. Go- I think every day they're still going to head out to the podium and call the day a win. I think that's just their MO, and that's going to be how they proceed all the way to 2020, and who knows, maybe to 2024. Um, but I think there's a real... I think as long as they can continue selling their narrative, the economy could be a little bit less of a play for them. I, similar to, uh, I believe Admiral Ken said something about, you know, not tr- trust what I say, not don't trust your eyes. Interesting. Uh, actually, uh, we're less than 10 minutes away from the end of the show. That's when we bring in our associate producer, 
who is somewhere between Lake George and Cape Cod. Audrey, are you on with us? I am. Audrey, uh, you know what? Laura brings up a great topic for a show downstream. I would love to have the ladies talk about the lady wave that's coming. Is that the proper term, Sharmila? Laura? I, I don't believe so. Lady wave. Do we call it the, <laughs> we call it There's the pink wave? There's got to be a better wave? way out there. Do we call it the pink wave? No, no, no Scott, no. No, uh, please, okay, no. Man, I just... Why don't you let them come up with the, the, the moniker? Yeah, what, yeah. You're, you're, wow. you're, you're, you're in shark-infested waters, buddy, and you, you present a great target. So yeah. <laughs> We can workshop something. Don't worry. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's uh, maybe try yeah. the female wave. Yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, work it out. <laughs> whatever that title of that show is going to be, work it out with Audrey. But, yeah, let's definitely talk about that. That's a great topic. Uh, Audrey, obviously, this is where we talk about our uh, golden parachute. Uh, this is the uh, bailout bottle. What did we learn last week? Who won last week, Audrey? Nobody won last week. In fact, we don't. Nobody know. won. We last have games back from July 31st was the last time we took names, but still nobody. And nobody took. So this is a part of the show folks where we try and guess who the next one to leave the administration is and the winner gets basically gloating rights for a week uh i'm going to start off with uh i'm going to start off with laura chavez laura chavez who's the next one to leave um more wishful thinking but i really just want uh kirsten nielsen to go on to her next great adventure. So I'm going to go with her. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll keep the, the, the ladies up. Um, Sharmila Chari, who do you got? Um, well, I don't want to pull a prices right, but I kind of want to steal Dan's pick of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Cause I feel like she's just, getting really tired of all the spit she has to do and all the ridiculous things she has to respond to. Oh, then with, since you pulled the prices, right, I'm going to go to Dan Lipner. Who do you pick? I'm going to go for the body slam and say Linda McMahon. (laughs) (laughs) Any particular reason why, or did you just want to make that joke? I just wanted to make that joke. Uh, Admiral Ken. Well, so there was a there was a there was a story on the day about the fact that uh, that that Trump appointees are getting special perks at the uh, at, at his golf courses. Um, so that being said, um, I'm going to go with Stephen Miller uh, because he's he he, uh, he his uncle's come out against him. Uh, he's not a good golfer, and he's never going to get any of the perks at the golf course. Stephen Miller, good one. Oh man, I would have—I didn't even think about that. Uh, I am going with Jeff she- Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General. Trump literally came out as late as today, just swinging a bat at the Attorney General, and I just don't know how much longer you can take that beat down. Uh, but I think Jeff Sessions 
could be the next to go. So with that in mind, um, let me go around the horn because we do, surprisingly, with everything we've covered today, we do have six minutes left. When we do have little time like this left over, we got five minutes. I want to do one-minute speed rounds. Sharma Charlie, what what is the story we missed this week? Chris Collins. I cannot believe we didn't talk about his insider trading uh, indictment and his subsequent uh, dropping out of his congressional race. Ah, that's right. We didn't talk about Chris Collins. By the way, does he drop? Does he stay in or does he leave? No, he already said that he was uh, suspending his campaign. He's out. Right. We've also heard that he right, might but drop I don't, back in. I don't in. know if they can get him off the ballot. Yeah, that's the problem is he might drop back in. <laughs> Fair enough. Dan Lipner, what did we miss? Uh, did we talk about the financial crisis in Turkey? Nope. That's something that's not going to go away anytime soon. We need to talk about that next week. Audrey, I hope you're taking notes. She went mute. She doesn't want to talk to us now. <laughs> uh, Admiral Ken, what did we miss? Uh, president signed into a uh, into law a uh, a bill that was championed and named after John McCain, uh, without uh, even mentioning John McCain. Um, his uh, his adolescent uh, behavior toward a a better man continues unabated. Is that sustainable? I mean, I, I mean, literally, to me, that seems like it's going to backfire on him at some point. And unfortunately, it may be when uh, Senator McCain finally uh, rings eight bells for us. Is 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 that if 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 Senator McCain passes on? Is that wave of sympathy going to backfire on Donald Trump, Ken? No. Uh, really? I, I, know too, I know too many of his followers that, that use you know, really, really uh, matchingly inappropriate language with regard to John McCain and, uh, unless, unless people like me are there to call him on it. And there's just not enough people that have got enough background about John McCain that can step up and say, you know, that's, that's BS and who the heck are you? I think, you know, with so much of Donald Trump's antics, you know, the public has a very short attention span. So I think that if the president manages to come out with a sufficiently, you know, gracious and humble comment after the senator's passing, then I think he can deflect a lot of the criticism that will come his way from Republicans, you know, and that can be dismissed as sour grapes by his supporters. Wow. Uh, Laura Chavez, what are we missing? Oh, Laura Chavez, what are we missing? Just to quickly add on to the McCain thing, uh, I think it will be completely dictated by how uh, Senator McCain's family receives anything that Donald Trump does. If they graciously accept any apology or note or kind words, then all of a sudden it will be, Trump is a great man. They had a wonderful relationship. Anything else there, Huckabee Sanders can say from the podium. If Meghan McCain goes full Meghan McCain and defies every Republican she's ever met and really just slams Trump saying her dad was a hero and Trump was the opposite of her dad, then I think it's not going to be a story that dies quickly. 
Wow. Wow. Uh, Lord Chavez, what did we miss? Um, the Another uh, domestic violence accusation out of Minnesota, Rep. Keith, El- I think his name's Keith, uh, but I know it's Ellison, Representative Ellison, uh, another ex-girlfriend came out of the woodwork saying that he was domestic, or he was uh, domestically abusive to her, and nobody is talking about it. Really? That I got to tell you something, we have not heard that here in D.C. The second uh, yeah. accuser? The, the second accuser, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and apparently it was partially done on the accuser's son's Facebook. He so it's kind of like the woman is accusing him, and her son is also vouching for him. So, and this isn't the first time he's been accused of domestic violence. So, it's one of those things that it's wow. going to just be pushed under the rug. Wow. Whether on purpose or uh, not. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, well, we've got one minute left, so i got to rush through it now. Uh, on behalf of Ken Carradine, Sharma Chari, Dan Lipner, and Lord Chavez, our associate producer, Audrey Harrington, I am your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Audrey, before you go, are you posting the cutting room floor today? I'm taking their silence as a yes. Yeah, I've been looking. Anyway, she'll be posting on the cutting room floor today. Follow us on our website, backroompolitics.org. Follow us at Twitter, at backroompolitics. Listen to us on all of your favorite podcasting sites. And check out our website, backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you. And I still got 10 seconds to spare. Have a great week, America. This is Backroom Politics.